Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back to No Business Like. Really excited for the interview that we've got today. This is Josh Benson from the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, and I'm here with my friends. Hi, I'm Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University. Danielle Van Hook from the Alden. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts. All right, I've got a question for you guys. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? And if you were a superhero, what would be your superpower? And then what would your secret identity be like to conceal your superpower? When I was a kid, I wanted invisibility or to fly. But right now, as an adult, with all the things I have going on, I wish I can control time so I can catch up with everything and and then have some time to relax and have some me time and not feel guilty about it because the world is stopped. Oh my gosh, that was my exact answer, which I think says a lot about uh, how we're all feeling working right now. <laughs> that was also my exact answer, but it was because I wanted to stop time at like 5.25 a.m. and then just sleep. And then, like, start my day refreshed. <laughs> and my superpower would just be, like, the ability to be me and not me with the filter of tired on, on the front. I totally hear you, Danielle. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say I would love to have the superpower of turning my terrible cooking into a way to defeat villains. Um, and I think... <laughs> Because I'm, you guys, like, I'm good at a lot of things, but cooking is not one of them. Um, so I would love to take that thing and be able to defeat villains with it, like, really bad tuna noodle casserole or, like, burnt french fries, like, whatever that is. Um, and I think the way I would, like, hide that is just by being me, because I think it's, no one would suspect that's something I'm really bad at. Um, but I would just, like, be walking down the street, you know, like, arts administrator, super mom, and, like, be able to defeat bad guys with like one bad dish wait what is your superhero name if that's your superpower katie casserole katie casserole <laughs> oh i like there that there we go katie casserole. I like katie that. casserole strikes again i would love super strength i don't know i feel like everybody always wants to lift heavy things or at least i do <laughs> i mean regardless but what I'm kind of getting to with all of this is that we interviewed mojo of mojo and the bayou gypsies and Kevin Maynard and I sat down with him and he had some amazing points that I know that we're all going to be able to benefit from. He talked about a relative of his who kind of had a secret identity as someone famous. Um, and then he also talked about like having an onstage persona and how that has to be some authentic part of yourself. And so I'm really looking forward to, to kind of diving into that. Here we go with our conversation with Mojo. Hey, yo, my name is Mojo from Mojo and the Bayou Gypsies. Uh, I've been a concert performer all my life since I was about 11 years old as a pro. Um, I do all original music, uh, all original storytelling and comedy uh, in a stage show worldwide for the last many, many years. Since 1985, we've been pouring Louisiana fire on the entire world. And that's what I do. I make people happy for a living. Well, thank you, Mojo. Thanks for joining us today. What led you to get into this industry to begin with? You know, what led me to start in the industry was my family. Not because they were entertainers, but because we were a very tight-knit family that met every weekend as a group. At the end of our family meals, the children would entertain. And when I was three years old, it was my first chance to entertain. Uh, my mama told me, next week you get to get up and do something, what you want to do. And I said... Uh, 
I want to be Elvis Presley and sing You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. I was ready to be Elvis Presley, but the one thing I didn't have was a guitar. At three years old, I didn't have a guitar. So I remember crawling through the kitchen cabinets of my Auntie Hilda, where we would meet every weekend for a family meal, and I pulled out an iron skillet with a long handle, and I decided that would be my guitar. I performed as Elvis for the family after our meal, and the reaction, the laughter, to the point of tears in some of my my family members, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, that feeling was something I decided right there, I want that for the rest of my life. So you, you said you were able to make that a reality. What was that journey like for you from realizing that at such a young age? How did you get to the point to where you became a touring musician? I got the realization that becoming a performer as a life career you know, by the time I was 10, 11 years old, I had figured out it's a process. The thing that drove me as a child from 3 to 11 was the audience reaction fed my soul, and I really liked making people happy. What I discovered uh, when I was 11 years old was that entertainment had value. We were kids with a garage band, and... Uh, someone said to us, uh, man, you kids are really good. You know, I'll give you 150 bucks to play at my party Saturday night. At that time, the average wage for a grown man was a dollar an hour. And we realized in three hours we would make a week's worth of income for a grown man. End result was we were hooked. Now, in the show, I tell the story, but I tell people that I was hooked when I found out People would give me a dollar to sing a song. But what really hooked me was they would give me $5 to stop. <laughs> <laughs> when did you um, go from being a, a performer locally to, to going out on the road? When did that transition happen? The transition to a touring artist um, really began when I was a teenager. We discovered that our band could play, perform, and run a business outside of our own community. So we became what, would, what now is called a regional act. When we were teenagers, we discovered that. People liked us. We learned, or I should say, I learned how to book. I learned how to do contracts at an early age. In those days, it was primarily word of mouth and a, a honor system, a handshake. My daddy always said, your word is your bond. And that's how I operated even all the way up into the 90s. Quite often, I would reject the concept of a contract and work on a handshake until I got burned. When we got into the major clubs, I realized I had to have everything on paper. It just became easier for all of us. And we had a higher probability of remaining friends than becoming enemies if we had a written contract that we all had to adhere to. It just worked better. Um, so in that process, that part of the process, I discovered we could travel and we could still operate our craft, our art, and make some money. So Mojo, during that, did you have any mentors that helped you along the way to kind of figure out that process? You said you were self-taught. I mean, who, who helped bring you up in that area? I had some really 
powerful, wonderful mentors. But I will share one story first, and that is a very famous Broadway musical actor when I was 12 years old was roped into counseling me. Someone who believed in me thought I should be in musical theater <laughs> and uh, arranged a visit backstage for me when I was 12 years old with a really famous Broadway musical star who shall remain nameless because of the nature of the story. I spent time with that person backstage after the show. And I remember coming out and my mama said right away, she said, what did you learn? And I said, mama, I learned that I will never treat anyone the way that person treated me. And that was a very powerful lesson early on. But my big mentor was Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob was Wolfman Jack. And Wolfman Jack was probably one of the most famous radio, well, they were announcers when he started, but they became radio DJs and he became an iconic American classic uh, in the rock and roll world. But Uncle Bob was my mentor from the time I was about, well, I have to say, from the time I was about 14 years old until he passed on. He didn't let anybody know who he was in private life. No, nobody knew he was Wolfman Jack. And it, it's, it, it, the recognition started when I was 14 at uh, a Christmas Day opening presents. Uh, Bob used to like to sit in his rocking chair by the Christmas tree as the kids opened the presents. And he's rocking away. One of the kids said to me, don't tell anybody, but Uncle Bob is Wolfman Jack. I said, what? He said, yeah, Uncle Bob is Wolfman Jack. You don't believe me? Ask him. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> so I, I went over and Bob was rocking in the chair and, and uh, he rocked pretty fast in the chair when he was sitting in there. And he, uh, I said, Uncle Bob, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah, go ahead. I said, are you Wolfman Jack? He stopped rocking and he said, who told you that? I said, Robbie. Robbie just told me you're Wolfman Jack. He kept rocking, didn't say a word, and he looked at me and he said, yeah, I am, but we don't talk about that, all right? I said, okay, I'm fine with that. Uh, and then once I knew that, he took me to his studio and showed me how he did his production and introduced us to a lot of famous people. I met Little Richard when I was 14 years old because of Bob. You know, that created a lifetime acquaintanceship with uh, Little Richard. A lesson that Bob gave me, and he always said, remember, you have two families, your showbiz family and your family at home. He said, never mix them up. Remember where you are and always protect that family you have at home. And I've lived my life that way, thanks to him. I would say he's easily the most important mentor of my life and career. Uh, and we've, we've uh, known so many show business people from my childhood on as extended family rather than as what they did for a living. And my children are the same way. They have many, many so-called famous people who are like aunts and uncles to them. But they really just as people, as family members, rather than what they do for a living. I've witnessed you in this industry uh, be very open with, with your knowledge, your wealth of knowledge, um, with mentorship. Is that because of your uncle that 
that you feel so inspired to, to give back and to, to, to help those coming up in the industry? It's a direct reflection. My willingness to give and mentor and help is a direct reflection of the two stories I told you. That individual who treated me very badly when I was a young aspiring performer and Bob Wolfman Jack giving so much. My last conversation with him was six weeks before he passed away. We had an hour-long conversation, and he said to me, I'm so proud of you. You've wanted to do this all your life, and you're doing it. I, I don't have any secrets. If something works for me, I tell people about it. I share it. People who are new in the industry who are about to break their fingers doing things that I broke my fingers doing, and I, if I can save them from breaking one finger, I've done them a favor. Uh, but my philosophy is anything I'm doing that you like, steal it. Because if you steal it, my art lives forever. I think that's kind of a perfect segue into, you know, like the business of the business. So, so I mean, you you sort of have become like a collector of mentees because you're willing to give that knowledge. So when you are first having that conversation with somebody, what's what's kind of the first thing that you, you tell them about the industry or the first thing that you want to impart on them from, the, from everything that you've learned over the years? The biggest lesson that I share with presenters is all in one example, and I think I've said it to both Josh and Kevin, who are with us on the podcast here, that is that regardless of how big in the industry you become as a presenter, remember no one's ever purchased a ticket to see the executive offices. They purchase a ticket to engage with the artist on your stages. And that is the most humbling but powerful message I can give to a presenter after all these years. Uh, also, remember that presenters have an obligation to their audiences of enriching their lives not just balancing a budget or putting butts in seats. Um, I think it's a presenter's mission, it should be a presenter's mission, to expand and enrich the lives of the audience members and the community. Because when they experience art together, performance together, they become a family with a shared experience. And they take that out of the theater with them. And it doesn't matter if very few people show up for a life-changing show because the attitude I heard once long ago from a brilliant presenter was, I always tell people, he said, the best show we've ever had was the one you missed last night. We obviously know you from... Uh, from interacting with you at these conferences. What, what is the role of the conferences for you, and what is the value that you see within the conferences? Conferences are very important. Um, I like to preface conference with a booking, booking a conference, because that transaction is what results in putting artists in front of audiences to share an experience and change lives. I tell my young performer friends that they must remember the entertainment industry or the performing arts industry for that matter 
is 1% performing arts and 99% business. So you must, you must learn the business of the arts or you might as well stay home because you're not going to have a sustainable career unless you learn that. I would do what I do for free if someone would pay my bills. But I was a single dad, had two children to raise alone. Uh, and uh, every penny that I ever brought in helped me raise my family. So our performance fees enable us to make people happy and enrich lives through our outreach as well. And it makes us pretty happy. I mean, we've had brilliant experiences. We've performed for over 300,000 children in the last 30 years, which is kind of awesome, I think. Uh, we've changed lives. Um, I mean, I myself, I would not have had the kind of life I've, I've achieved if it wasn't for music and the arts because, you know, I was kind of an incorrigible child, you know. Uh, Mama used to say uh, I was able to turn a behavior problem into a career. <laughs> and she was correct. Uh, uh, and my poor daddy, my poor daddy was so supportive, but he, he made 93 when he passed. And he still would ask me all the time, son, when you're done doing what you're doing, can you get a job? <laughs> uh, circling back to the, to the conferences and um, specific, specifically booking conferences and the business that's at hand, do you see this industry as more of a relationship-based industry or a transactional-based industry? I believe that the conferences are a reflection of the supply chain required to deliver performing arts to the people. We need to know each other. We need to know the challenges we all face together. I always say together because I, you know, I was on the board of Napama for six years and I've been a member for probably about as long as you two have been alive. <laughs> um, and our our approach is what's called coopetition. We are cooperating competitors who help each other survive for the ultimate goal of keeping the arts alive and in front of audiences so that we can share and enrich lives. Uh, I've never really cared if I sold a show or not because uh, I've told many presenters, look, I like you, you like me. If we work together, great. If we don't, let's be friends for life. And if we decide to work together, let's don't screw it up because I'd rather be friends than have one transaction and then not be friends anymore. But that's my approach. When I started out, particularly with Mojo and the Bayou Gypsies, when I started it in 1985 as an all-original show, all-original music, uh, not playing anyone else's music and not letting anybody else play my music, I was told, you're going to go out of business. And... Here we are all these years later, 37 years later, and all those people that told me that are out of business, and I'm still here. My criteria for the musicians that stand beside me on the stage are, number one, they have to be a really great person. That's number one. Number two, they have to be a great entertainer. And number three, they have to be a great player. But playing skill, that's number three. Good person is number one. I've been really blessed to have wonderful people with me uh, and work with wonderful people. We're, we've had this discussion, I think, even today that, that I'm kind of notorious for saying, no, if I don't want to work with somebody because they're not nice, I say, no, I don't want to do that. 
I'd rather have a good time, maybe have a lower gross per year, but a higher happiness quotient every day. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Napama. What is the value that you can see for both presenters and for art self-represented artists and agents in being part of an organization like that? Well, Napama is the North American Performing Arts Managers and Agents. It's a professional organization. We work together to solve problems as a community. And that way, if we solve a problem one time, we've solved the problem for the entire community. The benefit of belonging to an organization like Napama is that you are not alone. If you have a concern or a need or a problem, you can bet that the other three or 400 member organizations of Napama have the same problem. Maybe differing degrees, maybe modified because they're in different parts of the supply chain. But when you think of a supply chain, the life of the entire chain depends on each link in the supply. So we work, even though we compete with each other for business, we cooperate in improving the quality of business and the quality of life in the industry. I remember talking to the president of the Palma, the current president. She was the president throughout the pandemic, Gail Boyd. Uh, after about two years, this was like last year, we were talking about what did you learn from the pandemic and the Palma's response to the pandemic. And I said, I realized I'm too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, I don't want to do this again because I had been through everything from the rise of disco music uh, which put pretty much every live performing artist out of business because uh, you could hire a DJ for a hundred bucks instead of 500 for a band. You know, I remember those days. That was just the first crisis. I've been through so many so-called catastrophic experiences in the industry. And I realized there's no such thing because you, if you're a survivor, you're going to rise to the top again and you'll be just fine. As we learned in our first uh, uh, Napama retreat during the pandemic, or actually it was the second retreat during the pandemic, it was virtual. Uh, one of the speakers said, remember, everyone here is a survivor because you've made it this far. And everyone here is a survivor. The only thing I worry about really is the upcoming generation of people who are new to the industry who have no institutional memory, no institutional experience. What, what do you think is the best thing that somebody can do that's coming into this to sort of gain some of that institutional knowledge? I think the best thing that people can do to gain uh, institutional knowledge and history is to be open and unafraid, ask questions, choose mentors or let mentors choose you. Uh, every gray hair that I've earned in the industry is a powerful lesson that I've learned. So I always say reach out to those who can reach down and lift you up. It's, it's not a dishonor to be lifted up. You don't have to come into this industry thinking you know everything because you don't. You're going to have to learn every day. I mean, I never hesitated to ask questions when I was a kid. How do you do that? I started asking questions right away, and I remember when I was a kid, I was, first time I was on the radio, I was maybe 11 years old, 
I remember asking questions about everything. You know, how, how, in fact, that first radio interview that I ever did, I learned how to use a microphone. And, and you, the you listeners can't see this, but you guys in the room can see I'm, I'm constantly moving around this microphone, carrying the conversation, but I'm never losing the signal. Mm -hmm. you know, that's something I learned on the first day. Let's, let's walk back in time a little bit to when you were 11 years old and you had just kind of figured out that you needed a stage persona and that, that, that that's exactly how, what you were going to do and how you were going to move forward. What advice would you give yourself then from the knowledge that you have now? The knowledge, the advice I would give to myself when I was a kid starting out is that be true to yourself. Just be who you are. And if you create a character, make sure it's part of you because your authentic self is the most valuable self. And there's only one of you. And if you want to maintain entertainment value, if there's only one of you, that's the highest value product you can have. And if you're different and you differentiate yourself from everybody else because of who you are, that's the most valuable commodity you've got. Uh, myself, I've, I had that instinct when I was a kid. I also learned that you need to create a character because I knew, even as a kid, I knew that the people I saw on television, that's who they are when they go to work. That's not who they are at home. You have to be true to yourself. You can release what's in you, a part of you, that's maybe not socially acceptable if you're like that all the time. Uh, but the best product you have is yourself. So find what's in you that has entertainment value and be that person. You don't need anything else. Now, the other thing is, Learn from your experience. If you try something and it doesn't work, don't do it again. Daddy used to say, try it. You don't like it, spit it out. And it's true. If it doesn't work, don't do it again. If you keep doing the wrong thing and you don't get anywhere, it's your fault. The other thing is promotion is key. And this is another, another gem that I share with presenters. Sometimes there are not enough butts in seats at a show. But when we get there, we've already been following everything the presenter is doing to market the show. And we do our own marketing and sales. And quite often, we shouldn't have to be selling the seats for the person who is presenting. But quite often, I, I share with presenters in particular, remember, if you have a barbecue in your backyard and nobody shows up because you didn't invite anybody, it's not the barbecue's fault. If people don't know someone's coming to your theater, they're not going to come. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an obligation for the presenter to learn that if you don't invite people, they're not coming. Mm -hmm. In closing, one last question for you. In the industry right now, with all of the years that you've been in the industry and all the changes that you've seen in the industry, what's your favorite thing about the industry as it is right now? What I'm enjoying about the industry right now is 
the uh, reality check that we're going through. People in our industry who are still in their positions and still going strong, as I said, are survivors. And we are returning to core values and cooperating more. I do see some people trying to blame the other person in the supply chain. Uh, the reason the reason I'm not doing well is because your price is too high. Or the, the reason I'm not doing well is because uh, nobody wants to see your art anymore. Or the, the reason I'm not doing well is because uh, you won't hire me. You know, it, it's... You have to figure out what your customers need within the ultimate goal of your mission in life. And I'm seeing more and more people face that reality check. The thing that scares me the most is that the performing arts industry in particular lost a tremendous number of seasoned professionals that have gone on to other things. End result is that technical production has suffered uh, Business negotiation has suffered. Understanding of the industry has suffered. Institutional knowledge has disappeared. Uh, so we're at a shaky point in the infrastructure of the performing arts industry. A lot of things have changed, but it also provides an opportunity for growth. I'd want everyone listening to share this with everyone they can, and that is that we are all survivors. Putting people together, artists and audiences, is the major goal. Enriching life is the ultimate mission. And we all need a mission statement. I mean, my show is really wild and it's really fun. And I've got brilliant musicians and we engage the audience from the first note to the last note. I win bets every time I go in a theater that uh, you're never going to get anybody on their feet here. And they're on their feet and 15 seconds and they're still on their feet 90 minutes later at the end of the show. Um, I don't want to change that, but that's part of my mission. And my mission is just as the fingertip can conceal the world's greatest mountain from the eye. So too can the arts remove that finger and show the joys of the human essence. So my job is to move that finger. Let people see the greatest mountains of happiness every night. And every night, every show is different. People are wonderful. And we get to make people laugh and cry and dance and clap and scream and jump around like a bunch of monkeys and have a good time. We make people happy. And that's the bottom line of the performing arts for me. Thank you for your time today, Mojo. Um, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, Mojo. And also, I mean, thank you for what you're doing in the industry. I mean, mentoring so many people, I know that I have valued that. And I know that I just appreciate the way that you approach the business and that you do business. So thank you for chatting with us today and sharing that with our audience. I'm honored to be here because you guys are our future. Mojo had some great points in there. What did you guys get from it? What I enjoyed most about the conversation with Mojo was his separation of his stage persona um, versus his non-stage, which I think is he does incredibly well um, because in that interview, you know, he is engaging and he's sort of, uh, I would say, almost soft-spoken, but on stage, like he is a powerhouse, has lots of crazy energy and really, you know, 
becomes that that sort of character he's made. As you mentioned in the interview, he's such a mentor to to people that just come up to him. I met him at an APAP conference once, didn't know who he was, didn't know anything about his show, and just started chatting with him and walked away with some amazing advice. Well, and Brian, he has an incredible memory. And to your point, I met him at, it must have been the 2018 APAP conference, because that's the the first APAP I attended, went to the new colleague session, just saw him at the, the OAPN conference here in 2022. And he remembered me. I was really honored to make that connection again with him. And frankly, was like so surprised, but it was really a lovely, lovely moment um, at conference and looking forward to working with him in the future. You know, I feel like a lot of people say, yeah, I'd rather be friends. And, you know, if we do business at some point, that's great. But sometimes I'm not sure that that's genuine. Actually, I would I would jump on that and say the exact same thing. I mean, I have, I would say, a very good relationship with Mojo and he has mentored me for years now. And I think I met him for the first time in 2008 and I have yet to book him. Um, we've, it just hasn't, I haven't had the right event, the right experience yet. It's been quite a while, uh, since we've, you know, first met. I think that's a really interesting and not an intuitive way to, to do business, but it's very effective for him. Look how long he's lasted and been in business. The other thing that I thought was interesting with that is he said, you know, I want to be friends with you. And especially, you know, if you're a nice person, if I find out you're not a nice person, I don't want to do business with you anyway. I have taken that to heart, even on the, the presenting side of that. I mean, we are inviting these people's people into our community to interact with our audiences. And if they aren't good people and they don't treat you very well, they're not going to treat your audience very well. I wish that we were still at a point where we were getting business done with a handshake, because how much more genuine would that feel about inviting someone to your community, like you were saying, Kevin, and, you know, your handshake is your word, like he said. And how much would it be easier not to deal with contract? <laughs> also <laughs> oh, that. God. I would love that. The other thing as a presenter that he said um, that really humbled me, and it's so true, is that nobody ever bought a ticket to, to see the administrative offices. And, and I think that's a great grounding and centering that a lot of us in the industry need from time to time. Yeah, what a gut check. It, it really, like you said, it's grounding and it's a, that reminder of like, oh, yeah, it is truly those connections, the artists to audience, which are the key to the to what we're doing and is truly the most important thing. And I was like, yeah, way to go, Mojo. <laughs> way to like make sure that we are keeping perspective about what is truly important about the work that we're doing together. Having somebody who, without me really asking them, was willing to impart knowledge Um is created the way that I try to interact with any new colleague. Um, I am more than happy to share literally everything. Kevin, I'm so glad you said that because I feel the same way, especially when it comes to new colleagues. I've always tried to be open and honest with people, but now I'm like proactively going out and making sure I'm sharing what I know. Yeah. And, and I think that's why we're all doing this right now. Um, you know, having these conversations, obviously, you know, it, it, may have started out as something a little bit different, but that's exactly what this is at its core is sharing the knowledge that, that we have gained and admittedly learning more along the way. So you guys, I have a something specific that Mojo said that I wanted to get your input on. Mojo said, presenters have an obligation to their audiences of enriching their lives, not just balancing a budget or putting butts in seats, because when they experience art together, they become a family with a shared experience that they take with them out of the theater. That's been something that I've kind of focused on as a way of reopening and in my language for reopening post-pandemic is it's time to, to experience things communally again. It's time for us to share experiences again. And 
be connected and enjoying something together because there's a different energy that is present whenever you see something live and enjoy something live together than the screen that you've been looking at for the last 18 months. So come out and join us as we get back to live entertainment and truly enjoying things communally and as a community together. Yeah, I think I loved hearing it just because, you know, it's a conversation I think all of us have had either together or separately offline about, you know, how do you balance introducing new genres, new things to your audience, but also obviously making sure that, you know, you can pay the bills Um, because that can be a challenge. But I also know from experience and from my audience's perspective, it is far more enriching when we can bring in something new to the community that they haven't seen or haven't been exposed to. And I think to that point, Kevin, enriching an audience member's lives looks different for different audience members. Our audiences have vast, varied experiences and are coming from different places in their lives. So what might be enriching for one community member might be very different for another community member. Um, And I think this is for me, going to be a mantra moving forward. You have to find the right piece of art for the right part of your community to really make them feel like they belong and they're welcome in your space. Yeah, and you have to get them there too in the first place to enrich them. So it is a tough balance and it's something, as you mentioned, you have to become part of your community. And sometimes that's stepping out of your venue. Sometimes that's bringing artists to have not performance, but other types of engagement opportunities and getting to know each other really well. It also made me think of something else he said about the artist not shouldn't be responsible for selling the tickets. How many times do we look to the the artist and ask them to do all these different, jump through all these different hoops to promote their own show. But it really is up to the presenter. They should be the one that's involved in their community and know how to, to communicate with their community to invite them to that barbecue. But I mean, some artists are gracious enough to be, to volunteer themselves for interviews and for things like that, you know, and, and having call-in interviews, things like that. That's a, that's an incredibly valuable asset in a way to connect your community to that artist when they do it it's great but to basically don't expect it like don't don't make that your whole marketing plan you know if they're able to help you great well of course we'll take all the help we can get from the artist all the support we can get i mean there's certain basic things that they should be providing which we talk about in some other conversations with some of the agents but having their you know press kit or whatever that we can access to use but not not rely on them to sell all the tickets yeah and sort of realizing that once you get outside of sort of those like big high like a-list people who have a lot of like social media presence like yeah a social media post from someone like that is gonna is gonna garner a lot of energy get a lot of people to look into you know buying tickets or, or doing so but the flip side of that is you know i think so often a lot of venues and i think i at one point was would include myself in this list have said that oh you know x genre didn't work here because nobody came to the show and honestly looking back going yeah that was my marketing that, that had less to do with the artist on the stage and more to do with, you know, I didn't know what I was doing in that market. I think it is nice when the artist promotes the show or does a personalized video. I think that we need to not see that as something that they just, oh, you can pop it up and do it in your free time. It's artist labor. I think it's okay to do it as long as we're paying for that labor. I totally agree, Danielle. I have taken to actually putting marketing and social media asks, you know, into the offer and then as part of my contract to make sure that it's fully understood what we're asking them to do and make sure they've agreed to participating in that way. Um, I find that's a 
more equitable way of of doing that business and making sure we are compensating them for that time and labor, like you said. If it's within the contract, then it's a, a prior understanding and a prior agreement. Well, Mojo's conversation has obviously led to some great thoughts. I'm so happy for this to be going out just because there's so much great value in what Mojo had to say. And I'm glad that we were able to, to benefit from that, but that everybody else has too. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the No Business Like podcast. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hook. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. You can find and follow us everywhere at nobusinesslike.com, which has links to all of our socials. Stay in touch, my friends. Brian, how do you do air quotes with anything other than your fingers? It would have been funnier if you'd been like with his half finger. <laughs> That's true. That's true. There you go, Danielle. So half. <laughs>